So I apologize uh, if any coughing outbursts, um, recovering from flu, now I got a sinus infection. So it's been a fun, fun month in the household. But um, so as we get uh, the series started, uh, the, the goal, um, well, let me do this, let me pray. And then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll touch base on some of the uh, kind of the idea for, for the series and where we're headed. Um, Father, we pray uh, this morning that you just be present here with us. I want to pray for my voice. <clears throat> As well, just help me to to uh, to just have the energy, Lord, this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you for your grace, your goodness, your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, for for condescending in in such a manner that we might come to know who you are and have confidence in our knowledge of you, because you have revealed yourself to us. And so, Father, we pray that uh, as we talk about the reasons for belief and what are some of the uh, kind of the rational ways that we might say uh, trusting in you and believing and placing our faith in the Christian faith is a reasonable uh, choice. Lord, I pray you would help us to understand um, our own faith, but as well equip us to have conversations with others with respect to these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So when we, when we talk about uh, the Christian faith and we say we have reasons to believe, that Christianity is true. There's a couple of there's a couple of different things you might um, be referencing. So one of those, for example, might be a historical truth. There was a man named Jesus who was born in an area called Nazareth. He lived in a particular place and time in history, etc. We have references to him from within the biblical texts as well as other uh, documents outside. You know, an individual, for example. By the name of Josephus references Jesus, and so those are his, that's a historical question. So, like, was Jesus a real person in history? Would say yes, he is. Here's evidence for those things. Um, another another way of talking about reasons for belief might be uh, with respect to the, the biblical texts themselves. So, are the documents that we have and know as the Old and New Testament are they reliable? Can we trust them? And so, you might point towards the wealth of evidence that exists with respect to the stability. Of the text, and when I say stability, I mean we have all of these extant manuscripts from various geographic places, times, and locations, etc. And when you kind of do a comparative study and analysis of all the um, the manuscript evidence that we have, what what begins to emerge is that the, the texts have remained incredibly stable over time. Meaning nobody's been doctoring them, nobody's been messing with them, nobody's been getting them to say something to suit an agenda. Um, now it's not to say that there hasn't been slight variances due to like, for example, um, uh, a change of a, cause the, the, the Greek and the Hebrew language is inflective, I think is the term for it. So you might have like a shift in pronoun, like we to they kind of, that kind of shifting. So you do find those kinds of variances, which can be explained by like a scribal error <laughs> and we're copying it. But in terms of like, they, in terms of them saying what they originally said, like there's strong evidence that the, the evidence or the strong evidence that the documents we have have remained stable over time and nobody's been messing with them to get them to say what we want them to say. Make sense? So you've got historical documentary, you've got, those are, those are one of the things you might talk about. Um, but another, another way of talking about reasons for belief with respect to the Christian faith is, is, is we would say that there's reasons to believe Christianity is true because it better accounts for the human experience, the human condition. 
there's certain things about what it means to be a human being and live our lives that are universally experienced. And we just kind of, if you will, if we just kind of assume them as true and we live our lives as if they are true. And so one of the, or not one of those, but we might say, for example, the fact that as human beings, we ascribe beauty to things as part of the human condition. We also ascribe moral value to things. We say something is right or something is wrong. Um, <clears throat> we ascribe <clears throat> meaning to ourselves, to others, to the experiences in our life. That's part of what it means to be a human being. That's part of the human condition. Um, we also, we also would say that there is such a thing as truth. We say that there is, this is true or this is false. We ascribe this idea of, of truth to the reality. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. See, these are all, these are all um, fundamental assumptions that we all basically, when I say assume is true, you can have a conversation. You might disagree over what's right and wrong, and, but there's a certain reality where everyone just kind of assumes there is such a thing as truth. We assume there is such a thing as right and wrong. We assume there is such a thing as beauty. That's what we're moved by music and art, etc. Like we just assume these things and live our life as if they are true. And so when we say that Christianity is a reasonable thing to believe in, it's because we would argue, and this is this is really where the, the series we're going to be looking at is focused on, is is we're arguing that Christianity has a um, has a much stronger explanatory power than many other options that are out there in terms of accounting for these various things that we all just assume is being true because they're part and parcel of what it means to be a human being. Beauty, value, morals, truth, justice, right, wrong, etc. And so we would say that the beliefs of Christianity have a stronger explanatory power to account for those things than other options that are available. Um, so when we, when we talk about the veracity of, of, a, of a system of belief in this way, what we're talking about is what's called presuppositionalism, fancy word. Um, <coughs> but it's this, presuppositionism, presuppositionalism is a method of examining presuppositions or assumptions upon which a worldview is based and following those assumptions to their logical ends or conclusions. And what we're looking for is coherence or contradictions. So does this assumption support the conclusion you're making? Or does your assumption contradict a a conclusion you're reaching or an assertion you're making? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you're looking for coherence. Does it, is it consistent? Does it make sense? Does, does the assumption support your assertion, if you will? Um, In order to, and what we're doing is we're doing this in order to compare and contrast the results between different assumptions. And in doing so, we're asking which assumptions best account for the human condition and experience as we know it. Does this make sense? So in terms of uh, modern philosophical theological discourse, this is a relatively, when I say relatively, think on the scale of like a couple hundred years, a relatively newer way of thinking about um, how we would talk about the truth of the Christian faith. But the ideas that undergird this idea of examining assumptions are actually very old. Um, And as is often the case, um, C.S. Lewis is one of the individuals who who tends to kind of grab ideas and and articulate them in ways that that have a certain kind of punch. And so (coughs) Lewis noted this, this, uh, 
distinction, I, I would say Lewis noted that the Christian faith offered a better account of things than the scientific or materialist worldview that was ascended during his time and to a certain extent is in our day as well, but I would say argue less so. So Lewis writes, he says, granted that reason is prior to matter. So when he says reason here, he means reason as the, 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 the human capacity for engaging in logic and rational discourse. Does that make sense? So he says, granted that reason is prior to matter and that the light of primal reason illuminates finite minds. So when he says prior to matter, he's saying that assuming reason exists prior to the material world or independent of it. And this is important where he's going to go with this. Anyway, so he says, assuming that it, it, it exists prior to matter and that the light of primal reason illuminates finite minds, I can understand how men should come by observation and inference to know a lot about the universe they live in. If, on the other hand, I swallow the scientific cosmology as a whole. And so when he talks about scientific cosmology, what he's getting at here is a materialistic understanding of the universe. There is matter and that is it. There's cause and effect, that is it. There's nothing that exists outside of the, the, this causal closed system of matter acting on matter, right? He says, if I swallow the scientific cosmology as a whole, then not only can I not fit in Christianity, but I cannot even fit in science. Mm -hmm. If minds are wholly dependent on brains and brains on biochemistry and biochemistry in the long run on the meaningless flux of the atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. And this is to me the final test. So what he's arguing here, he goes, if you want to uh, assume a position that there is no such thing as mind or reason, which is the theistic position, there is the created material world, but there is also, if you wanna use the word supernatural, spiritual, however you wanna phrase that, there is a mind, a reason, a creator that exists behind the material world, that exists independent of, and before and is the cause of the material world, then you have reason to assume that logic and reason are viable things. But if all that exists is the material world and you have this closed system of cause and effect, then the thoughts that you think are merely a product of some causal chain. You're not reasoning. You're not engaging in logic. You're a cue ball that's bouncing or being pinged off another ball. It's a complicated, it's more complicated, but nevertheless, you're not thinking in the way that you think you're thinking or assume that you're thinking. Your brain's just fizzing. And this is why, so he closes it and he says, Christian theology can fit, fit in, meaning it has stronger explanatory power, right? It can fit in science, art, morality, and the sub-Christian religions. The scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things, not even science itself. And then I love this, this line here. It says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And so this is a brilliant way of articulating it. But this is what Lewis is engaging in here is a form of presuppositional argument. He's saying, if you assume that all that exists is the material world, <coughs> then you also are, you're, that assumption necessitates the conclusion that reason itself is no longer a viable way of, like that assumption is faulty. 
The assumption of reason and logic as being reliable ways of coming to know anything itself is, is flawed. Does this kind of make sense? But if you assume that there is a creator, if you assume that there is a mind behind the created world, then what endows our reason and our logic with the capacity to actually know the world is because it is, it is rooted in something that's deeper than just cause and effect. Make sense? Yeah, good question. Sure. This book, they asked for a paper. Does he go on to take a stand against it or for it or explain why? For, again, for against what? <clears throat> the reasoning. Oh. No, Lewis, Lewis is arguing for. Lewis would argue that reason and logic are real things and they do enable us to come to a knowledge of the world in which you live in. But he, but his, his argument here is that only makes sense if you assume a theistic worldview, because the moment you, the moment you adopt a position where there's just the material world, then reason and logic themselves become part of the system of matter, which is a, which is a complicated causal chain or a complicated chain of cause and effect. And so, a way of saying it would be is this, the thought, the words that are coming out of my mouth were predetermined to occur at the Big Bang. And what links it is just a very complicated chain of cause and effect that we may, maybe can't wrap our heads around or understand, but nevertheless, like it, it really boils down to brain chemistry and atoms bumping into atoms. And if that's the case, then, then if I'm trying to understand something, so again, the assumption that we all live our lives on is that I can think I can make decisions. I can weigh things in the balance. I can choose. This is better. This is truer than this. But if, if everything is cause and effect, do you see how that, that, that becomes an illusion? Choice is an illusion. Thinking is an illusion. Logic is an illusion. Reason is an illusion. And so what he's arguing for here is the, the theistic assumption is the only assumption that offers an explanatory power for the human experience of, I interact with the world, I grow in knowledge and understanding, I acquire wisdom, I think, I make choices, I make value judgments. Does it make sense? But if you wanna take a materialistic assumption, that assumption itself leads to a very um, catastrophic contradiction, if you will, because it undermines uh, reason itself. Because if, if the human mind is reduced to chemical reactions, um, and, and our thinking is the, is the result of basic material causes, then reason and logic aren't what we functionally assume them to be. Like, like I mentioned before, like our thoughts are just brain fizz. That's all it is. And that's why Lewis says they're, they're of no more account than the wind and the trees. Make sense? So it's just, so that's why I said, like you take an assumption and follow it to its conclusion, or you take an assumption and you try to, you try to figure out does, does an assertion here make sense of your assumption. Um, so this, again, these are all kind of old ideas that are, that are out there in, in philosophy and science, but um, uh, this is why Lewis is saying that Christian theology makes room. He says it makes room for science, it makes room for art, it makes room for morality. Um, but the scientific view can't even make room for itself. So now this is, um, <coughs> this is a pretty high level articulation. Um, so over the coming weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to start, uh, well, let me, let me back up. 
we're going we're gonna to spend the coming weeks looking at the question of meaning, for example. We're going to say, how does the Christian account give it better explanatory? Um, how do the assumptions of Christianity offer us more uh, a better explanation for this human sense that we, we search for and create and try to find meaning? Right? So we're going to spend one week on that. We're going to look at the, this, this question of beauty. How does the Christian assumption offer us a better explanation for the human pursuit of desire for and want of beauty. So it's a weird, I mean, really, if you think about it, it's a weird, why do we aspire for beauty? Why are we, why are we moved by things? Whether it's uh, an act, like something in nature, it could be like a, a vista, right? Have you ever had one of those where you see like this incredible view and you're just, you're struck by it. Um, or it could be um, a painting. Like if you've ever gone to a museum, you're just walking along and all of a sudden you just see this painting that cap that just captures you. You find yourself being captivated by it. Or if you're into music, like you hear a song and this, this, all of a sudden this song comes on and you just have to stop whatever else you're, is you're doing and, and listen because you're being captivated. You're, you're being drawn into. And so in theology, that's awe. Where, where, why do we have this experience of awe? Right? So we're going to talk about how the Christian assumptions offer better explanatory power for this. Um, same thing, like next week, we're going to talk about this weird dynamic where it seems like all of humanity has this yearning for home in a place that simultaneously is linked with this sense of I'm not where I belong. Like, in, and it's this weird tension that all of humanity seems to have. I want a place to belong, but I don't belong. We're, it's like we're in search of a home we haven't ever been to. Like, where does this come from? You know, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how Christianity offers a better explanation for our human, our, our proclivity to assign meaning and morals and values and justice, etc. Makes sense? So that's, so that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. We're going to be kind of unpacking each of these things and talking about how the Christian assumption offers a better explanation for the human experience. Um, but today what we're going to focus on is this idea of God, a God who speaks <coughs> and talk about the importance of revelation in scripture. Um, now, the reason we're going to kind of take this shift is uh, what I don't want to do is I'm not going to spend a lot of time arguing for like theist, non-theistic position. Cause again, I would contend, like, if you want to assume there is no God, that's fine, then be consistent. If there's no God, then morals, beauty. And if you're willing to ascribe to that, then fine. I'm not willing to ascribe to that. It doesn't make sense of my own experience of what it means to be a human being. It doesn't seem to make sense of humanity. And even, and, and no, no, I've never encountered a consistent atheist who, like, for example, to say God doesn't exist. Yes, I don't believe there's right and wrong. But if you take his wallet, he's going to still say an injustice has occurred. Right. So I just don't I don't see it as a viable option. It's 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 fraught with too many contradictions. But most people, most people you're going to meet, they're not going to be about atheist per se. They're going to be more in line with what you might call an agnostic. So they'll say, I believe there is a God, but I don't necessarily know if we can know who he is or what he's like. Um, another term that, 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 that's popular is they'll say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. You know, and, and basically it's like I have this I have this nondescript, non-defined notion that there's a God, a presence, power, 
of something that's out there, you know, maybe we can, maybe we can't know who he is. Right. And that, that's where most people tend to fall. And so I want to kind of speak to that and talk about how in light of that reality, that there's some important questions we should ask that I do think point to the Christian assertion and assumptions as being reasonable and, and having some explanatory power. Make sense? So assuming that God exists, some things to consider. Um, first is this. <coughs> it's the newer, newer ideas about God that are probably the wrong ones. Now, we tend to appreciate and value and like novelty, innovation, and new ideas, especially in the United States. We're just bent that way. But if God exists, he's been around for a very long time. And so our proclivity for new ideas kind of runs, uh, it is, I would say, it's, it's, the, it's a faulty kind of disposition with respect to God. Because if God's been around for a long time, make sense? The new ideas about him are probably the ones we need to be a little bit weary of. Um, and, and the idea that we've only just now, today, or within the last, like, say, decade, or even last hundred years, we've only just now begun to figure out and discover who God is, is really a silly idea, if you ask me. Because if we're talking about God, who's eternal, he's always been here. He's been around for a long time. So I'm just saying, apply reason, apply rational thinking. The new ideas are the ones we should be suspicious of. Not the old ideas, but the new ones. So thus, in thinking about who God is and what he is like, Christianity stands out because its ideas about God have some real history to them. And they're not recent ideas. Does this make sense? Now, the reason I'm sharing these things is because I've, I've used these, these ways of framing it in conversations with people. Just to say, like, here's why I think it's reasonable to, to assert that Christianity is true. You know, so here's one, one thing to consider. Second, if God is out there, I think it's safe to assume he's most likely been communicating with us. And so here's what I mean. Like, if God is real, assuming that he is and he's out there, and he's worth anything, and he actually cares about us, and he cares about his creation, I think it's safe to assume he's probably been trying to communicate, or has been communicating, has been letting us know who he is, or what he's like. Make sense? Mm -hmm. And so, now of course, this assumes he's good, and that he cares about us, but if he's not good, and he doesn't care about us, then it doesn't really matter anyway, does it? <laughs> but if he is, then I think it's a good assumption he's been trying to get a, get 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 our attention. Let us know who he is. And so thus, in thinking about who God is and what he's like, Christianity stands out and makes sense because it is rooted in a tradition of God speaking to us and making himself known. And it's always been the claim of Christianity. It's not that we've discovered God. It's not that we found him. It's not that we lifted a rock and said, oh, look, here's God, right? Or went on some journey and discovered him. The, the claim of Christianity, which has its roots in Judaism, has always been that God first did what? Spoke. Spoke through a prophet, spoke, like shows up to Moses in the burning bush. But, but the impetus of the Christian faith, which has its roots in Judaism, is not that we discovered God, but rather that God chose to condescend, to come down, and to make himself known, to speak, to communicate, to, to avail um, himself to us in a way that we could comprehend him, 
understand him, and come to know him. God speaks. This is why I say it's important to talk about this idea of re revelation. Revelation in, in the sense of God being the one who reveals himself to us. So in this way, Christianity makes some sense. <coughs> Third, we should be wary or suspicious of the lone nut job who speaks for God. Um, <laughs> this is a sort of tongue in cheek, but I think it's right to be suspicious of the guy who comes in and says, I know who God is. And it sounds different than anything anybody else is saying. <laughs> And the same person is like, you need to trust me. Don't believe anybody else, just me. I got to figure it out. I know who he is. Follow me. Do what I say. Now, do you have a question? So, I'm just going to throw this out. So, weren't the Jews skeptical of Jesus in that way where he's going? Yep. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's reasonable. Yeah. <coughs> um, now, when I say this, this isn't to say that doesn't mean that God has spoken or has never spoken through somebody. Right. Now, maybe this just tips the hat that I'm biased, and that's okay. I am. I'm biased to the to the Christian faith. I believe in Jesus Christ as the as the Son of God who came and lived and died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. But nevertheless, like within the Christian and Jewish tradition, you have this history of God speaking. But notice it, it was never through always just one person. It's through multiple people throughout history in various socio from various socioeconomic places and status. Right. And there's this sense of co coherence or cohesiveness in the message that they're disclosing, whether it's with respect to who Yahweh is. And then this carries over in the New Testament. Here's here's where I think it's. It's interesting. So during the New Testament time, yes, you had individuals like Paul going around, the Apostle Paul going around saying, this is the word of the Lord and speaking with apostolic authority. But also notice that there was also other individuals who were doing the same, Peter, James, etc. And so, for example, if you read Second Peter, you see Second Peter, Peter referring to the writings of Paul as scripture. And so there's this Instead of you having having one individual going around saying, I know who God is and he's speaking through me, don't listen to anybody else. You have this group of people saying God has spoken, is speaking through us. Notice that you see the difference. And I don't think it's I don't think that's insignificant. I think that that's while subtle, I think that's important to understand. Is is the testimony that we have in the tradition that we're part of is not from just one person speaking. But multiple people over the ages, oftentimes, and in the New Testament in particular, many of them speaking at the same time and affirming one another in their message. Does that, does that make sense? So, thus, in thinking about who God is and what he's like, Christianity does well because its claims about who God is emerge from multiple individuals who claim God has spoken to them, yet their message is one that is still coherent and consistent. Um, now, with respect to the question of Jesus, yeah, there, there were disputes about who he is. And that's, so for example, when you read the gospels, that's why you see them pointing to these prophetic fulfillments, or these, these longstanding prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. 
But there's also the accounts within the, the text themselves where Jesus was known, not just within the Gospels, but even other works. He was known as a miracle worker. And so saying that he was, when he would teach, he would do so with authority. And the things that he was saying were being affirmed by uh, miraculous occurrences, if you will, that were, were in essence. Uh, he was fulfilling the prophecy then? Well, I'm saying that the, the, the miraculous works, like the healings and various other things, mm -hmm. were uh, signs. I was trying to think of what the, the, so the Gospel of John talks about them as signs, mm -hmm. meaning they're, they're evidences of the truthfulness of his message. And so when you read the Gospels, like one of the key ones that, the, that it, like, so Jesus will have these interactions, he'll, he'll heal somebody. And then the, the religious leaders come in, they're like, by whose authority do you do this? And he's like, there's an exchange, but, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. They'll come to him and Jesus will forgive sins, which is now, if you understand the context, like that's a massive claim because only God can forgive sins. And the way God had established for sins to be forgiven was through the temple mount, the offering of sacrifices, etc. Make sense? That was the provision. That was the way through God's, Revealed law, the prophets that that forgiveness of sin had been, um, or, or rather, a way for forgiveness of sin had been established. So when Jesus Jesus shows up on the scene and he forgives sins, they're like, "What are you doing?" They understand what he's doing. The the act of forgiving a sin is for him to claim some sort of divine authority. Make sense? Mm -hmm. And then Jesus retorts. He goes, "Well, which is easier to forgive sins or to heal?" And then, it, and then what's he do? He heals them of some kind of <clears throat> physical ailment. And so when John or the gospel writers talk about a sign, that's, it's like Jesus did these things in authority and then miraculous occurrences followed as a way of demonstrating that he was acting on and in accordance with, with the power of God. Make sense? Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> there's more that can be said. Um, but yeah, the, the, those debates were taking place and that's why. You do see the Gospels arguing for, as well as Paul. No, no, Jesus was who he said he was, and these, these are the reasons why, etc. And you have prophecies and, and various miraculous acts. All right, so be wary of the lone nut job. Um, <coughs> fourth, we should look for old ideas about God that are still around today. Um, so if God exists, we should expect that the old ideas about him are still actually active because if it's about God, you would think that God would still be interacting and preserving these ideas about himself via an ongoing uh, engagement with and communication with his people, mm -hmm. whether that's directly or indirectly. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So this is what I mean. I've yet to encounter somebody who worships Zeus. They did it one time, but I don't know any Zeus worshipers today. There was a massive civilization here in North, Central, South America that worshipped the Aztec Incan gods. I've yet to encounter anybody that's still worshipping those gods. So there's plenty of old religions in the history of humanity, and most of them, oddly enough, have fallen away and perished. So when you say, well, if there's old ideas about God that are still around today, there's really only four. And one of them is still is relatively new. So you have Hinduism, which dates back about 4,000 years um, within the region of India. You have Judaism, which is as old. 
approximately 4,000 years. And then through, and so Christianity claims to be the messianic fulfillment of the messianic prophecies of Judaism. Mm -hmm. So Christianity through Judaism has its roots 4,000 years ago. And then you have Islam. Islam emerged around 800 AD through, through the writings of one man, yeah. Muhammad. Um, and then on the other side of that, you got as well uh, uh, Mormonism or Latter-day Saints. Same thing. It emerged later on through the writings of one man, Joseph Smith. And then you have other kind of derivatives of that. But essentially, there's, I would say, I would say three old because Islam is 800 AD. And so you've got Judaism, Hinduism, and Christianity, and Christianity by extension because of its roots in Judaism and its claims as being the messianic fulfillment of the long-standing prophecies of Judaism. Those are the only three ancient faiths that are still practiced today. Make sense? So again, I'm not saying um, I'm, I'm pitching in for, for Christianity, obviously, but nevertheless, like I'm just using reason and saying like, if God's out there, he exists, he's probably been speaking for a long time. We've probably known who he is for a long time. So I'm not looking for new ideas about him. I'm looking for old ideas, but I'm not looking for old ideas that have perished because that doesn't make any sense. I'm looking for old ideas that have had some sticking power and are still around. And of, of all of the faiths that have existed, there's only three that kind of fit that bill. Judaism, Christianity, and Hinduism. Make sense? And... Um, so I will say this. So there's us and thus in thinking about who God is and what he's like, Christianity does well. Because while it is a contemporary religion, the ideas about God it espouses have a long and sustained history. <coughs> and then finally, <coughs> we would say if God has spoken, there should be a preservation of what has been said. Um, and so you would expect that if God has actually communicated to us or to his people, that both God and his people would want those communications, those words to be preserved and to be recorded and to be passed down. And this, this is where I would argue strongly that, that um, the Judaism and as well as Christianity coming out of it do stand out um, in the sense that I can't think of any other ancient, um, ancient religious belief or system of belief that has engaged in as dutiful an effort to preserve their sacred texts as you find in Judaism and moving into Christianity that that practice carries over, which is why, for example, in today, and, and I don't, and I'm not saying this even from a religious standpoint, I'm saying from a scholarly um, vantage point, like if you're talking about uh, uh, like critical interactions with doc, ancient documents, if you will, the the evidence for the stability and reliability of the text that we have, both Old and New Testament, with respect to the Christian, the, the, the Jewish and Christian faith, far exceeds, far exceeds anything else in antiquity. Like there's just so much evidence that's out there. And meaning that for whatever reason, the Jews and then the Christians felt burdened to preserve the words that had been given to them. And to copy them accurately and with care and to, and to disseminate those things and to, and to spread them and pass them down in a way that we could, that, that those words were preserved. <clears throat> Make sense. So thus, in thinking about who God is and what he's like, Christianity does well, because it has a long history of preserving 
copying, transmitting, and sharing the words it states it has received from God. And so an example more, uh, in recent or modern history that proves this out is a longstanding argument is that the suffering servant prophecies in Isaiah were at some point doctored and manipulated by the church because it just seemed uh, to fit, quote unquote, too neatly into this idea that, that uh, someone would come and suffer and die for the sins of others. And so a long argument was that at some point in history, because, you know, through the Middle Ages, of course, the church was the only institution of higher learning that had, a, had that preserved all these documents, that at some point in history, a Christian scribe manipulated Isaiah to suit their purposes because they were serving in an agenda, their own agenda. Does that make sense? And then who, so who here has heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? So then you have the caves in Qumran. There's a, a Bedouin shepherd. Here's a pottery thing. Bus goes in, and it's this massive discovery. And within the, the scrolls that, that are present, they find um, a full copy of Isaiah in Hebrew, which is called the Masoretic Text. So it's, it's an ancient, um, it's a, and, and, it, and to this day, I think it's the, the oldest one that we have. Now, what's important about this one is that the earliest existing manuscript that was that we had, if you will, like by carbon dating, etc., of Isaiah. Now, don't quote me on this. I want to say, I want to say, like four, maybe five hundred A.D. If that makes any sense, and and most because most of these things are written on papyri or paper, and so they they fall apart, which is why they would be copied. You know, because as one degrades, they copy and pass it on. Now others would be written on like um, animal skin, leather, so there was, they preserved better. But in the in the in the caves in Qumran, they found an Isaiah scroll that dated back to I want to say two or three hundred BC. So this predates the church. It predates Christianity. It predates all of that stuff. And guess what was found in the Isaiah scroll? The suffering servant prophecy. And so this is what I'm saying. Like there's there's evidence that this practice has not been not it, this practice has been something that's been taken seriously. They're not manipulating. They're not twisting. They're not they're not contorting or doctoring what they've received. But rather, they're trying to preserve and pass on what they've received. And so Christianity stands out in that respect. <coughs> so. While none of this stuff conclusively proves the reasonableness or the truthfulness, let's say, of Christianity, um, where this is helpful is if you're talking with somebody, especially who's agnostic, well, I don't know who God is and I don't think we can. These are questions that are worth asking. So, for example, you could just say, hey, okay, if, if you're willing to assume that God exists, then would you agree he's been around for a long time? It's like, well, yeah, it kind of makes some sense. Okay, cool. So if he's worth a piss, then he's probably been trying to communicate with us. Would you? It's like, yeah, that makes some sense. So you see how you can just kind of lead it into a conversation. We start pointing to the reasonableness of the Christian faith. It's like, well, here's this faith that says, no, he's, he's been around. He's been speaking. It has some history. It's not a new idea. And it, and it didn't come about through some lone nut job. It came about through the testimony of multiple people throughout history various socioeconomic statuses and classes yet there's a consistent message so see how this just starts to work and, and function as a way of just engaging people in a conversation to start showing like hey 
there's some things that Christianity asserts that when you really start to kind of try to understand, they actually make some sense. Like if you're one to assume God exists, then these, these, these things make sense. It's not weird that we would say, no, we have the scriptures and we trust, like all that stuff actually makes sense. Because if God is speaking and you want his words preserved, what's the best way to preserve what he said? How would you do that? Document it. You document it. You write it down. Right? And then you, you do your best to make sure that it's preserved accurately. So like from a, from a rational standpoint, if you want to say, okay, I think God might be there, then Christianity's claims that we know who he is because he's revealed himself to, those are not irrational claims. They're very logical claims. And they're rooted in history. And Does this make sense? And so over the next coming weeks, we're going to talk about how Christianity's assertions and assumptions make sense of truth and beauty, um, our desire for a home, um, morals, justice, etc. Um, so let me pray, and then uh, we can field any questions that might be out there. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Father, we thank you for <clears throat> rather we, we praise you for being who you are. You are a God of truth and love, justice and mercy. Lord, you have uh, you have made yourself known to us, speaking through prophets and through your word, and ultimately through your son, who came, lived, died, and rose again on our behalf, so that we might be forgiven of sins, reconciled to you adopted as sons and daughters, made co-heirs with Christ, raised in glory, and forever seated with you, ruling and reigning over the creation as restored sons and daughters. So Father, we praise you for all that you've done, all that you're doing, and all that you will do. And Lord, we ask that you would equip us, not only to better understand um, our faith for ourselves, but so that we might as well be better equipped to talk about and communicate the truth of the gospel to those in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Any uh, any questions? I have one. Um, even as a strong believer, you know, you read the scriptures and it says to honor one God. Mm -hmm. Now, I pray to God and Jesus, but I get confused. Okay. Because I'm like, all right, uh, do I go straight to the Father? <clears throat> who he always referred to, and but they say to pray to Jesus. But God says, no, nope, you pray to me. I get all the saints and everything that's, you know, a lot of people do that. But that's where the confusion comes in is he even states, I am the son, this is my father. Yep. And he makes all the decisions. So when you pray, you're like, you want to make sure you don't leave somebody out. <laughs> either one or two of them so you're like okay god and jesus you know so what what is because sometimes scriptures can confuse you uh so what is the truth behind that is it wrong to pray to jesus because the father is the almighty or is he god which is explained that came to earth as man yeah so in so leading into so like obviously the early first three centuries within the church a lot of the debates that took place uh centered around the question of who is christ um so one of the first the first debates if you will were how do we understand who jesus is 
is he man or is he God? And so where they ended up was ultimately saying, no, based on what we see articulated in the scriptures. So for example, Jesus forgiving sins, these other factors as well, um, his, his claims of being one with the Father, you know, claims of divinity, you know, but then you also see, for example, Jesus being hungry, etc. So um, where they landed was by what's called the hypostatic union, that Jesus is both fully, fully God and fully man, and his divine nature, and in the person, the person of Jesus Christ, or the incarnate person of Christ, you have the Son, who's eternal, and so they would say eternally begotten of the Father, he's the, 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 the begotten one, the eternally begotten, took on flesh, and so he took on a human nature. And that, that human nature and divine nature, they don't commingle, they don't inter, intermix. So Jesus has both is both fully divine and fully human. And so they call it the hypostatic union. Makes sense. So and so once that was once that piece was there, then 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 that led into this other conversation. Well, okay, well, how do we understand? And then you get into the you know you have the Trinitarian debates, and all these things are kind of interlinked. But where the church has landed is by saying, so God is one, but he, he's, a, he's one in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the Father is God, right? But the Father is not the Spirit and the Son. The Son is God, but the Son is not the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit is God, but the Spirit is not the Father and the Son. And so while, while some of this may seem like the church is kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth. What the church has sought to do is be faithful to the testimony of scripture. And so you'll see, for example, even in the gospel accounts, when, uh, in, when Jesus is baptized, you actually see a picture of the Trinity because it says, you see the spirit descending like a dove and then a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So right there in the very, you see this portrayal, this picture, this evidence given of this tri triune understanding of God. Um, I wish I, I didn't bear my Bible today, but um, in a lot of even the epistles, you'll see these these references, the Father, Son, and then the Spirit kind of inter, interspersed throughout um, the epistles. And so the idea, or rather I would say that this idea that God is one and three is really old. You find it within the New Testament. You're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible. That's a word that was articulated later on by theologians who were reading the scripture, trying to be faithful to what the text says. And when I say what the text says, I mean, like, you have this verse here and this verse here and this verse here. There seems to be some tension. We know that God doesn't contradict himself. We know that. So um, the, the, the effort has been, how do we reconcile them without ignoring what they say? Does that make sense? And so all that to say is like, when we pray to God, we can pray to the father, we can pray to the son, we can pray to the spirit. Um, they're not at war with one another, right? So the, 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 the oneness of God means that God's will, like Jesus is never willing against the Father and the Father. You know what I mean? There's not like a, they're not competing. They're unified in one, having one will as God, you know? But in terms of how those things are carried out, you see it within salvation history being uh, them serving in different capacities or if you want to say roles, they call it the economy of salvation, so the Father plans, Jesus carries it out, the Spirit applies. Maybe how you, like in a very simple way of saying it. And so for us, it's appropriate to say, I'm going to pray to the Father, right? 
And I'm going to ask the Father to do, like, Lord, Father, da 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 in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Or you, we might plead with the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move. We would ask that you would, you know, or pray directly to Jesus. Jesus, walk with me through this time of suffering. Help me to suffer well as you have suffered. Tell Jesus, Jesus, send me your Spirit. All of those things are are appropriate ways of, of praying and relating to, to, to God. And you see them reflected, I think, in the scriptures. So does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, it's basically now the understanding that all three are as one. Yes. It's a mystery. Yeah. And that's and that's just don't leave anybody else. <laughs> and oftentimes that word mystery gets thrown around in careless ways. Yeah. But I think if we're talking about if we're talking truly about our creator who's transcendent and he's greater than we are, then there are going to be mysteries. And when I say mystery, I mean um, they're beyond the capacity of our finite minds to understand completely, completely. So while we can say I have a knowledge of God that is, um, I think I'd phrase this. We know God. All right, let me say it this way. I can say and know things about God that are accurate because God has revealed himself in scripture. And so through scripture, I can know things about God, but because I am a creature and he will always remain my creator, I will never have a comprehensive or exhaustive knowledge of who God is. And so because God will always be, uh, the knowledge of God will always be inexhaustible to us as creatures. There will always be a mystery with respect to who God is in his, in his person, character and being, if, if you will. Does that make sense? Yep. And so Trinity, the Trinity is one of those things. It's like, how do we wrap our heads around this? It's like, well, we're not going to wrap our heads around that. Like we can two plus two equals four. But if God has said, I am this and I am this, then we, we receive that. We accept that on faith because God is telling us something about himself that our minds will not be able to kind of wrap around. Um, so that's when the, when the, when theologians talk about mystery or paradox, that's kind of what they're getting at is there's these aspects of God that remain behind, beyond our comprehension in the sense that we will never comprehensively know all that there is to know about God. He will always be awe inspiring to us because he is our creator. Um, a good question. Thank you. <coughs> <coughs> Going back to the C.S. Lewis quotes from the book there he was writing, that seems to me like it's his version of validating the beginning of John. In the beginning was the word. Yeah. Am I right in that? Taking that? Yeah. He's well. He's drawing on, and John himself is drawing on a a, a, a tradition in Greco and Greek philosophy. This idea of the logos, or the, right. the the divine mind, the divine reason. And so, if you read Greek philosophy, there is this tradition. Um, Spent a lot of time since I thought about this. Uh, associated with Platonic thinking, but but nevertheless, like that that the world doesn't just reduce down to the material. Like there was an understanding within Greek philosophy and thinking that there's there's more to the world than just rocks, etc. There's there's you want to say the soul, the spirit, the thing, the and so one of the one of the categories or terms they would use was this idea of logos or divine mind or divine reason, and they would. And in certain philosophical um, uh, schools, they would talk about how 
the Lagos is what orders the world. And so the Lagos sits behind what we see. It's, it's the real behind the, uh, or the really real that sits behind what we're able to interact with in the world. And so when John is drawing on that, he's drawing on that philosophical tradition, but making a strong argument that Jesus is the divine. He is the Lagos. He is the divine mind that sits behind the creation. And so that's a good connection because when Lewis is doing that, he's arguing philosophically in that, in that kind of what I'd say in that same stream. And, uh, but he's, he's pretty in layman's terms and he, but he, and he's also applying it in a, in a context, which didn't exist back then, which does today in terms of you have this, well, now there were materialists back then as well, but he's applying it to the scientific because the, the scientists, the sign, the sign, let me say it this way, there's science and scientism. And so science is, I think an ordered, rational, logical, meaningful way of interacting with the physical world to come to a better understanding of how things work, if you will. Scientism is a materialist belief that that's all there is. And that the scientific method is the only viable means of arriving at any sort of knowledge. Um, but what that does though, is that discounts and automatically kind of erases other forms of uh, knowing, if you will. So here's what I mean. Can science measure validate and <clears throat> improve love. It's like, what, what is that word? You like, what does that mean to love or, or can, can science measure, validate, improve goodness? It's like, no, I mean, you can observe somebody acting in a certain way and say, well, that's good. And that's bad but you're still making a value judgment. Where does the value judgment come from? See what I'm saying? Like, so you end up in a, in what's called an infinite regress, so to speak, where, and, and so scientism has these problems. And so that's what Lewis is tackling is this kind of scientism where you have this material world. And so he's applying this old idea, but in a, in a, in a pretty, I think, powerful way to point out, like if you ascribe to this science, scientism kind of materialist view, then you're actually kind of cutting your legs off from underneath you because you're, you're, you have to assume that reason is a viable way of, of arriving at truth for the scientific method to function. But the moment you say that there's only the material world, you cut yourself off from that, that, that assumption. Cause you, does that make sense? So, but that's a, that's a great connection and, and really good insight. <coughs> Any other questions? All right. So next, next week will be, um, if I remember correctly, so, and I'm, my, my brain's foggy, so don't, don't hold me to this. I think, what's that? Okay. I think, I think next week is, is we're looking at this idea of, um, search, a search for a home and where does this come from? And why does, why does the, the universal human experience seem to be one of, I'm looking for someplace I've never been and a restlessness that seems to pervade our experience of life and how the Christian story seems to make the most sense of that. And then we'll begin to move from there and hit these other pieces. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. Hit the well.